So I want you to turn there if you're not there already. 1 Samuel chapter 17. It's a familiar chapter because this is the story of David and Goliath. In fact, this is one of the most best known Bible stories. This is one of the Sunday school classics. It's become a cultural expression. It refers to an underdog situation. But I believe that a lot of the teaching about David and Goliath really misses the main point of this chapter. Usually the way that this passage is taught, probably not here, but a lot of other places, is that David represents you, and Goliath represents your problems. So what is the Goliath in your life, you'd be taught? Is it the school bully? Your financial woes? Is it your lack of confidence? Well, be like David. Face your fears. Trust in yourself and in God, and face the giants in your life. When the odds are stacked against you, be courageous and God will give you the victory. Let me just say, spoiler alert, that's not the point of this passage. This passage is about a mismatched conflict, but not the way that most people think. It's about God's relentless defense of his own glory and a young man who joined him in that cause. My title this morning is The Invincible One. If you're taking notes, I'm going to be showing five scenes that declare the triumph of being allied with the living God. Five scenes that declare the triumph of being allied with the living God. It's a long passage, so I'm going to read it as we go. The first scene we'll see, chapter 17, verses 1 through 11, is the champion. The champion. Let me start with verses 1 through 3. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. And they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and they camped between Soko and Azekah in Ephestamim. Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and camped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in battle array to encounter the Philistines. The Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, while Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. We see this valley. You can go there today, many of you probably have has a seasonal stream bed in the middle, and at this point you see the parallels between the two armies. The Philistines make a camp, the Israelites make a camp. The Philistines gather, the Israelites gather. They line up, opposed to each other, one side and the other, and at this point it seems even. But there's a big difference, because the Philistines brought a giant. Verse 4. Then a champion came out from the armies of the Philistines named Goliath, from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span, He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was clothed with scale armor, which weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze. He also had bronze greaves on his legs, and a bronze javelin slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the head of his spear waved 600 shekels of iron. His shield carrier also walked before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel and said to them, "'Why do you come out to draw up in battle array?' Am I not the Philistine and you, servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants and serve us. Again, the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul And all Israel heard these words of the Philistine. They were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now we meet Goliath. 
He's only called by name twice. He's called the champion three times. The rest of the time, 26 times, he's called the Philistine. He is the specimen of power. He represents them as a people. Probably had some overactive pituitary gland. It ran in the family. Other giants we are mentioned later on in his family. But in this section, what we see is a lot of details about him. We see his height. Six cubits in his span. So that's nine foot nine. We see his helmet. This isn't a typical Philistine headdress. It's probably borrowed from another culture or maybe specially fashioned for him. It could be a sponsorship thing, craftsmen really trying to make something impressive for him. But it's just for show because nobody can reach that high anyway. He's wearing male armor. It weighs about 128 pounds. He's wearing weight of armor that's like cement bags. Plates sewn to leather, front and back. He's got greaves protecting his legs, molded bronze lined with leather. He has a bronze javelin between his shoulders, also a sword. His spear is like a beam with an iron head. The head itself is 15 pounds. The shaft would have made it twice that. Bronze was the metal of the day, so iron was unusual. This was a lost art that had been recovered. In other words, he has high-tech military weaponry. He has a shield carrier in front of him, someone carrying a full-body shield. Everything about this man was supersized. He was intimidating. As Joel James says, he was not just a giraffe, he was also a rhinoceros. (laughs) This giant has come to mock Israel. He wants to get in their heads. He wants to perfect the art of psychological warfare. Why do you line up for battle if you're not prepared to fight? Is it costume day? What are you doing dressing like soldiers? And so he challenges them to one-on-one combat. Now, this was not a common practice among the Semitic cultures, but this is something that the Philistines picked up along the way, maybe from Egypt, maybe from Greece. So he explains the rules to them. Here's how it works. Why go through the trouble of a long battle where many people die? And then the losers end up serving the winners anyway. Why don't we just skip out that middle bit, right? Why not just have one person fight one person and then determine from there who serves you? But you can tell from verse 9 what outcome Goliath expects. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, not likely, will become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants and serve us. You can imagine the Philistines making the list already of to-do tasks for those captured Israelite servants. I defy the ranks of Israel, he says. I mock you. I taunt you. I insult you. I scoff you and all you stand for. I revile and curse and spurn you. Goliath heaps the contempt and the disgrace and the shame and the reproach on Israel. Give me a man. I want to fight. But he did not find a man in Israel. No one wanted to face him. From a tactical standpoint, this was an impossible matchup. Saul would have consulted his advisors. He would have asked them who should fight him. Nobody would have said it, but everyone was thinking it. The most obvious person was Saul. He was the tallest. He was the strongest. 
He was the king that was chosen to go out before them and fight their battles, chapter 8, verse 20. But Saul wasn't thinking about it, and so nobody else would either. Notice, by the way, that's how leadership works, that even when a leader does nothing, he's leading. He was leading the people in his own fear. He was afraid, and so Israel was afraid. He was afraid of an invincible Philistine. And it spread throughout the camp. The fear was like an epidemic, an outbreak. And it wasn't irrational, right? It wasn't a fear of shadows. It was a fear of something objective, something measured. It was an intellectually informed fear. It had objective data to back it up. It's clinically proven that fighting giants is harmful for your health. So the Israelites are shattered, dismayed. They're terrified. They're filled with a powerful fear. And then we break to the next scene. Number two, the courier, verses 12 through 23. Verse 12. Now David was the son of the Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, whose name was Jesse. And he had eight sons. And Jesse was old in the days of Saul, advancing in years among men. The three older sons of Jesse had gone after Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab the firstborn, and the second to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. Now the three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's flock at Bethlehem. The Philistine came forward morning and evening for forty days and took his stand. Then Jesse said to David his son, Take now for your brothers an ephah of this roasted grain and these ten loaves and run to the camp and to your brothers. Bring also these ten cuts of cheese to the commander of their thousand and look into the welfare of your brothers and bring back news of them for Saul and they... And all the men of Israel are in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. We've cut to Bethlehem now. We meet David again, the son of Jesse. Jesse is old. Three sons have gone to war. David, the youngest, is with a sheep again. We know from Numbers 1 that a man was considered fighting age when he was 20. So David was probably a teenager at this point. Saul had previously, in the last chapter, asked David to play music for him and appointed him as a shield bearer, but at this point, he's back home. It seems he maybe traveled back and forth when there was a need. The arrangement is that he goes back between Bethlehem and forth to the battlefield. Jesse, back home, is beginning to wonder about his sons. He assumes they're fighting hard, but in actuality, that's not what they're doing. They're at an impasse every day for 40 days, a stalemate with this giant. Every day, the Philistine has been taunting them. He's taking his stand against them, just like the kings take their stand against God in Psalm 2. It's the same verb. Saul's strategy seems to be that eventually, if he waits long enough, that he'll go away. That eventually, maybe it'll devolve into a normal battle and they'll have a better chance of winning. But David comes out, not as a soldier, but as a courier. He's delivering provisions. He's coming to bring news He's going to go right back. But then he sees what's happening. Verse 20. So David arose early in the morning and left the flock with a keeper and took the supplies and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the circle of the camp. Well, the army was going out in battle array, shouting the battle cry. Israel and the Philistines drew up in battle array, army against army. Then David left his baggage in the care of the baggage keeper and heard them. Providentially, David gets there just in time to see the lineup. He sees Goliath taunting as he had before. 
These words are familiar to the rest of the army, but these are new to David. It's his first time to hear what, they were, what these words are, and he responds very differently from the way the army has. That leads us to the third scene. Number three, the challenge. The challenge, verses 24 through 40. When all the men of Israel saw the man, they fled from him and were greatly afraid. The men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who is coming up? Surely he is coming up to defy Israel. And it will be that the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Then David spoke to the men who were standing by him, saying, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? The peoples answered him in accord with this word, saying, Thus it will be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger burned against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your insolence and the wickedness of your own heart, for you have come down in order to see the battle. But David said, What have I done now? Was it not just a question? Then he turned away from him to another and said the same thing. And the people answered the same thing as before. This is where it all begins to change. First, David sees the army. They're getting pumped up. They're getting ready to go out. They're shouting the war cry. They're forming ranks on one side of the valley. The Philistines line up on the other side. He must have thought the battle was imminent. But then the same thing happens as every other day. This giant, the champion, comes out. He repeats the same reviling, blasphemous words as he has before. David hears them. He's shocked by them. And then the Israelite army flees. You can imagine the giant marching through their midst, swinging his sword around, pulling out his spear, laughing as they break ranks, as discipline falls apart. Their formation splits. They run back up the hill to their camp while the giant stands below taunting them. Give me a man! Israel's fear of him has only grown. The giant's arrogance has gotten worse. Everyone knows that he has gotten there to defy Israel. We've seen also how Saul has tried to motivate people. He's tried to entice them with incentives. Great riches. You get to marry his daughter, which would open up a lot of other political privileges. And a tax-free status for you and all your relatives for life. That was a huge reward. But it wasn't enough. To these soldiers, they looked at it and said, you know what? A tax break is not that valuable when a 33-pound spear is stuck through your skull. Israel is more hopeless than ever. But something special happens at verse 26. This is the turning point. This is the key verse in the whole chapter. Here, two significant things happen. Number one, David speaks his first recorded words in Scripture. We've been hearing about him for two and a half chapters, but these are the first words that he's actually recorded to say. And second, when he speaks... He immediately inserts God into the narrative. Have you noticed that for the last 25 verses, everything has been described in strictly human terms? Have you noticed that? We've heard about the geography. We heard a description about Goliath's armor. We heard how much it weighs, a coat of mail, 5,000 shekels of bronze. We heard about the names of Jesse's sons and the birth order of them. 
We've heard about 40 days of taunting. We've heard about an ephah of parched grain and 10 loaves of bread and 10 cheeses. We hear about Goliath's words. We hear about his actions. All that's true, but there's something massive missing up to this point. There has been no mention of God. You see, the narrator has been showing us the godless perspective of Saul and the Israelites. They haven't denied God. They just gave their attention to other things. They were distracted. Their profession of Yahweh was completely disconnected from how they looked at the situation that they were in. Is this a warning for us? You see, we live in a world, too, that constantly tries to tell us preach to us that God is irrelevant. And sometimes it does that overtly and explicitly, but often it does that by telling us about everything else, as if that is all that matters. Every time we read the news, or we open a magazine, or we surf the internet, listen to the radio, watch a movie, we're being told that this is all there is, and this is all you should care about. And there is no God. They talk about shekels of bronze and loaves of bread in contemporary language. And while it doesn't seem like a theological assertion, that message is in fact a statement telling us that God doesn't really matter. This is why we need regular spiritual exhortation. This is why we need to keep the Savior at the absolute center of our thinking. Saul and his army professed to know Yahweh, but in this moment, they were functional agnostics. They had adopted a worldview that forgot about God. They were not thinking about him. And so, as a result, they were shattered and filled with fear. Sinful fear grows when God is absent. When people hear you talk about life, do they know that you serve the living God? Is God supreme in your thinking and your doing? Does his reign change your perspective on everything else? Well, it did for David. You see, David enters the scene, and he has a phenomenally theocentric perspective on the situation. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? In other words, doesn't the fact that our God lives make a difference here? Our God is alive. Do you think he's going to allow his name to be dragged through the mud by this Philistine? What I want to know is who's going to have the privilege of being able to remove the reproach from God's people. That was David's perspective. When the Israelites see Goliath, they see him with eyes of flesh, and so they tremble. Saul dangled rewards in front of them, but it hasn't worked because they're material things, and they can't replace the God-shaped void in their worldview. We notice, too, David asks this question, seemingly repeating the same question. The men of Israel just listed the rewards for whoever kills the Philistine. Riches, marry a princess, free from taxes. And then in verse 26, he asks the same question. Okay, so what's going to be done for the man who kills this Philistine? Yeah, we just answered that, right? Riches, princess, tax break, right? But he's actually reframing the question here. He's actually looking at the cost-benefit analysis completely different from the way Saul has. See, Saul and the army have said, all right, facing a giant, certain death, not worth it, right? David's saying, wait a second, fighting a giant, defending God's honor, removing the reproach from Israel, 
allying yourself with the Lord of hosts, who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't want the honor? Wouldn't it be madness to not fight for God's honor? That's how David sees it. The soldiers don't get it. They keep answering the same question the same way. His brother, Eliab, gets angry with him. He accuses him of being a rubbernecker, being there with an evil heart. We can see why God rejected Eliab in the last chapter. God sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. David's heart was not concerned about Eliab's judgment of him, but he was profoundly concerned about the Lord's honor. That's what he cared about. And so he thinks this question is still worth asking. So he goes through the camp asking more people, continuing to say, who's going to fight this guy? Wouldn't it be an honor? Doesn't the fact that God lives and defends his own name make this a battle worth fighting? And every Israel so far says, no, nope, uh uh-uh. But he keeps asking it. And while we love to identify ourselves with David in this story, we have to ask if maybe we're sometimes more like those soldiers. Do we love God's honor more than our comfort and our safety? David did, and it stood out. Verses 31 through 37. When the words which David spoke were heard, they told them to Saul, and he sent for him. David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail on account of him. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistine. Then Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight against him. You are but a youth. Well, he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant was tending his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by the beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, since he has taunted the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and may the Lord be with you. Well, the word spread. There's someone who's not afraid. So Saul brings him in probably hoping for some Israelite champion. And when he sees it's just a boy, he goes, oh. But David walks in, he sees all these older men afraid, and he tells them, don't be afraid. I'll fight. And at first, it seems maybe it's just youthful overconfidence. But then David gives his reason for his courage. Saul looked at him, and like Eliab, he sees the outward appearance. He points to the obvious facts. Look, kid. I don't want to send you home to your mom in a bag, right? He sees a situation with the eyes of flesh. But David won't take no for an answer. And he tells him what he's learned as a shepherd. He's killed a lion and a bear, not for sport, but to rescue a lamb. But he attributes that victory to the Lord, delivering him from the lion and the bear. In fact, interestingly, in Leviticus 26, God had promised the Israelites that as they took over the promised land, that he would protect them from the wild beasts. David had biblical support to believe God's promise to protect him from the lion and the bear. His reliance on the Lord is what made him such a good shepherd, one who would leave the 99 to rescue the lost one. And his courage came because he was joining the Lord's fight. It was the Lord's battle. David's faith was not a wish. It was rooted in a promise God had made. And now he's going to do that exact same thing, just with a giant this time. 
Verse 36, again, this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them since he's taunted the armies of the living God. This Philistine's put himself on God's blacklist. He's a dead man walking or stomping or whatever. And again, this is not David deciding what God should do for him. This is David knowing God's word and knowing what God is going to do from his word and putting himself in line with that plan. David knows who God is. He knows God's jealous. He knows he doesn't give his glory to another. He knows that God will vindicate his own name. He knows God has rescued his chosen people from Israel, from from Pharaoh. He's, He's given them victory over the Canaanites. Of course he believes that God will defend his name. God said he'll do it. He's always done it. The only question is, who gets to be the instrument he uses to do it? David's courage came from a confidence, not in himself, but in the Lord and his faithfulness to do what he says. Just as the Lord had rescued him from the paw of the bear and the paw of the lion, he would rescue him from the hand of the Philistine. Okay, so this enemy has opposable thumbs, but the Lord will conquer him too. David's faith for this day was reinforced by God's faithfulness in the past. That's why we need to remember God's goodness to us in the past. So Saul agrees. He lets David go. He wants the stalemate to end. Maybe he has a plan B. He gives him a blessing, or maybe it's just a prayer. Yahweh, be with you. It could be more of a God help us. The verses 38 through 40. Then Saul clothed David with his garments and put a bronze helmet on his head, and he clothed him with armor. David girded his sword over his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. So David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. And David took them off. He took his stick in his hand and chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's bag, which he had, even in his pouch. And his sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. Saul tries to give David his armor. It's ironic. Saul's a head taller than everyone, and David's a young man, so of course it doesn't fit. So he takes it back off. It shows us another contrast between David and Saul. Because even now, Saul is trying to find deliverance in the symbol of man's strength. But not David. David's hope is not in his armor. He hasn't tested these armors. But he had tested something else. He had tested the faithfulness of God. He had seen God prove himself again and again in the past and reliable today. You can imagine him saying, with respect, sire, my hope is in something far more proven. God's commitment to keep his word. That's what I will depend on. It's easier than you think for us to fight in Saul's armor. We start trusting the Lord, but then we want to add something to give us a little benefit, a little advantage. We want to add man's wisdom or human methods, new techniques for marriage or parenting that are not biblical. New ideals of secular leadership and success. But those things that we rely on to make us more effective actually hinder our reliance on God. And whenever we do that, we are not adding, we are subtracting. We need to be careful ourselves of fighting in Saul's armor. Saul is a king who trusts in human devices. That characterizes his reign. David will be a king who trusts in the Lord. David won't follow Saul's footsteps. And so we see David with a stick, with five stones, with a sling approaching this giant. From a man's perspective, he's horribly outgunned. He's overshadowed by this giant. But from God's perspective, it's something very different. We've seen the champion, the courier, the challenge, now number four, the conflict. 
verses 41 through 53. Then the Philistine came on and approached David with the shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy with a handsome appearance. The Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine also said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you, and I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. As the battle opens, Goliath dominates the scene. The Philistine, six times, big, powerful actions, came, approached, disdained, said. David's actions, much quicker, took, chose, put, approached. Goliath sees a youth. He thinks he's being mocked. Am I a dog? All you have is a stick? Once again, David is underestimated by his appearance. Goliath invokes his gods to curse David, but even he doesn't seem to depend on them much. His confidence is in himself. I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. But the more he curses, the more confident David is that this man is God's enemy. After Goliath curses David, David remembers the promise God had given to his people. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. So he turns that same curse around and applies it back to the Philistines. I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth. Goliath spelled out the terms of his own destruction. And David recognizes his armor and his weapons, but he sees that they are nothing compared to the Almighty God. What do you have, Philistine? A sword? A javelin? I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. Your sacrilege and irreverence are against him. And this is his army that you have been taunting. See, David knew that this battle was no contest. It wasn't ultimately a battle between an underdog boy and a giant. It was between the almighty God and a puny grasshopper of a giant who God would soon crush. That was the real challenge. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Yahweh scoffs at them. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Well, what tool would Yahweh use? In this case, he used a young man, David. He had speed, he had reflexes, but what made him special was a zeal for God's honor. And that was really the heart of this passage. David knew God's word. He learned to love what God loved and to hate what God hated. David didn't recruit God to help him fight his Goliath. David enlisted himself to serve the Lord, to fight the cause that the Lord defends his own name. He would stand against anything that threatened that, even if it happened to be a giant. The purpose of the battle was to show that the Lord lives and reigns, and nobody could outwin him. See, the Philistines were convinced that success was measured in weapons, and they were glad because they had the best weapons. But David had a theocentric view, and he saw success was measured by the pursuit of God's glory. 
and he knew the Lord would be victorious. Verses 48 through 53. Then it happened when the Philistine rose and came and drew near to meet David, that David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand into his bag and took from it a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead so that he fell on his face to the ground. Thus David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. And he struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in David's hand. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. The men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the valley and to the gates of Ekron. And the slain Philistines lay along the way to Sha'arim, even to Gath and Ekron. The sons of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines and plundered their camps. And the battle is remarkably brief. The Hebrew used 63 words for David's speech and only 36 for the battle itself. You see where the emphasis lies. David flings a stone. It shatters his cranial bone. Goliath falls to the ground. Ironically, do you know what the Levitical penalty was for blaspheming the name of God? Death by stoning. Leviticus 24.16. But it was over fast. Some people probably missed it. Wait, where's the slow-mo replay? But nobody missed the sound of that thump. Boom. And when they heard that sound, they knew what that signified. It didn't signify, this is a really lucky kid. It signified that there is a God in Israel. And he alone is invincible. David cuts off the giant's head. Goliath was not invincible. He's just as impotent as the gods he served. Those who serve idols will be like them. He's just like Dagon in chapter 5. Lifeless and headless. Of course, the Philistines don't submit. They never intended to. But now the fear has switched camps. And they are on the run. The Israelites attack. They leave a trail of slain people all the way to the Philistine cities. And the birds and the beasts, just as promised, devour them. The conclusion, number five, the conclusion from verse 54. Then David took the Philistine's head and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his weapons in his tent. Now when Saul saw David going out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this young man? And Abner said, by your life, O king, I do not know. The king said, you inquire whose son the youth is. So when David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the Philistine's head in his hand. Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. We see a few loose ends tied up here. First, what happened to Goliath's head and his weapons? Well, the weapons he takes to his tent. Later, he presents them to the house of the Lord, and we see them turn up again in chapter 21 when he goes to Nob. But as for the head, he takes it to Jerusalem, which seems innocent enough until you remember that Jerusalem was still held by the Jebusites, the Canaanite people. David had grown up just a few miles from there, and the ongoing occupation by Canaanites reminded him of Israel's failure to complete the conquest of the Promised Land. In fact, when David becomes king, Jerusalem is the first city that he will conquer, and he'll make it his capital. But for now, he brings Goliath's head there as a warning of going against the Lord. Consider, O Jebusites, who you trust in. And then we rewind just a little bit. We see... A little bit earlier on in the battle, Saul watching David. Who is this young man? What's his status? 
Saul's already met David, but he seems to have forgotten or needs to be reintroduced. And that leads us to David once again, with that head of Goliath, gory, in his hand, standing in front of the king. David, there, a young man. Saul, tall and strong. Saul has the crown on his head. But his leadership has only been leading the people in fear. And what did they fear? But God was the one who worked through David to deliver the people. Someday, God would work through David's line to bring a greater deliverer, the one who would also be rejected by men, the one who would also be passionate for the Father's glory, consumed by zeal for his house, that son of David who would rescue people and us from death and slavery to sin forever. So what's the main point of this story? This chapter is not here to teach us to puff up our chests and face our Goliaths. It's here to call us to see things from a theocentric perspective, to devote ourselves to the pursuit of God's honor above all else. If you can pray for us in South Africa for one thing, pray that we can do that, that we can continue to seek the Lord's glory above all else, and that he would use us to exalt the name of Christ among the nations. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we are in awe of who you are. You are the mighty God. There is none like you. Lord, thank you for how this chapter shows us and reminds us of your greatness, Lord, and how you use even the most unlikely means to vindicate your name. If God is for us, who can be against us? Lord, some trust in chariots and some in horses. May we not be like them. Lord, may we not put our hope in worldly ideologies or uh, material means to try to find success, to try to make ourselves strong. Lord, may we trust in you as our refuge, as our defender, as our deliverer. Lord, may we know your word and understand your cause, and may we align ourselves with it. Lord, may we follow you, our captain, into battle. Lord, whatever you call us to, thank you for the way that you have called each of us and equipped each of us with the grace that we need for the day ahead of us. Lord, help us to honor you and to live lives that allow the world to know that you are the living God because of our example. Lord, we commit the rest of the service to you in Jesus' name. Amen.